0: Welcome back to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier and joining me today is musical composer and performer extraordinaire Terry Riley. In 1964, Terry introduced minimalism, a revolutionary new direction in musical composition. His groundbreaking classic, NC, changed the creative course of music. His originality has influenced the work of many other prominent classical composers such as Steve Reich. Philip Glass and John Adams, and also rock bands, The Who, Tangerine Dream, and many others. There are numerous recordings of N.C. and Terry's ongoing prolific work as a composer. These include Rainbow and Curved Air, The Cusp of Magic, and Shri Camel. Terry appears on stage internationally with some of the world's greatest performers. He is a legend in his own time, and we are so lucky to have this chance to talk with him about work and life. So I want to launch into our conversation around the term avant-garde because we use that term a lot in our culture and I wonder sometimes if people are uh thinking about the origin of that term in the French as meaning advance guard and artists who are in that advance guard are really on the front line of the culture in a sense, bringing in new information, speaking new languages to us, and I think bringing about possible futures. And I wonder sometimes also if this activity somehow protects the present, the presence of this activity, of reaching into possibility that way. And you have been uh, an advanced guard, a frontline artist since very early on in your career, so I'd love to talk with you a little bit about this, about this experience in your own life, what your understanding of this pioneering work is, what the essence of it is in you, the ability to sort of reach into the unknown that way, the inner nature that can make that possible.
1: I didn't feel like I, I relate that strongly to the term avant-garde. It seems to me that the thing that artists do is to bring something that's particularly close to their own perception into view for other people. It's not like a club you join or, you know, we're the avant-garde club we're, we're leading the wave of art of the future. It seems like it comes out of individual work, individual artists. It's just the way they view the world.
0: Mm-hmm. and who have that capacity, in a sense, to go into the unknown and bring something new through. And that's, I guess, what I'm wondering
1: about, your your inner experience. I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, in music, being a good listener, listening for things. More than, say, trying to make a mold to pour things into, you're leaving yourself open to see what uh, to listen for and to see what is out there. To me, that's all the musicians that I've worked with, the good musicians I've worked with, have this aspect to their to their work.
0: So that sort of orientation, I guess, is also what makes it possible for someone to trust their ability to improvise and have that kind of presence.
1: I know a lot of artists talk about creating structure and form, and they talk about architecture, and for me, it, it never starts there. I mean, that might be a part of it later on. You'll see relationships and your mind will get involved, uh, you know, in, in constructions. But the thing that makes work really alive is being open and being a good listener and tuning into whatever sound vibration out there there is.
0: When I read about your time lag accumulator, I right away thought about Wilhelm Reich's orgone accumulator, and I wonder if you were making any reference to him or if there's any relationship in your own mind between the two
1: uh actually not. I'm familiar with the work of Wilhelm Reich, but it was certainly not uh I wasn't trying to make a connection to that with my my time lag accumulator. The time lag accumulator was a um uh, had had two different existences. One, it was a system I used to use to perform live, which created a lot of echoing delays that were recycled mm-hmm. so that you would have things that happened in the past coming back and mixing with things that were happening in the present in, mu- in a musical context. Uh, and, and because of the accumulation of these sounds of both past and present, uh, that's, I gave it that title. Then I built a actual structure uh which was a big room about thirty feet in diameter, with several chambers in it, in which people would go into and and if they were talking uh they might hear what they said in another chamber you know a few minutes later so that was another uh another manifestation of this time lag accumulator
0: that sounds like
1: fun. Yes, it's right now existing in the Museum of Modern Art in Lyon, France, if people want to experience it. There's
0: a photograph of you, I think, in front of it. Is it mirrored?
1: Yes, it's all mirrored on the inside. So it's kind of like a house of mirrors, and also the sound reflects that reality. Hearing yourself, seeing yourself. Or other people, or, you know. Yeah. It mixes two other people into the whole fabric. I do see a
0: relationship between the time Lang accumulator and the orgone accumulator, even though the orgone accumulator may also have not been what Reich said it was, but there is this life energy, this generator of uh, universal energy that I think is part of your art and part of what he was trying to clue people in about, sort of the chi. Yes. Since we're on the subject of time, I've always thought of music as an art form that is about time, and I think people focus on the sounds themselves, but the space between the sounds is just as important. You're really dividing and punctuating units of time in in a mathematical way sometimes, and I wonder if you think about time in relationship to your compositions.
1: Well, of course, uh, musicians, you know, think about time all the time. We study and 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 practice very uh, complex modes of time organization, and are always in reflecting in, on different ways to uh, make combinations of rhythms and and spaces in our music. So, yeah, it's it's there all the time. Uh, it it isn't necessarily uh, separated from the. The pitch aspect of music, though, because uh, on a on a fundamental level, the uh, the very slow vibrations in time, like say something like sixteen uh, beats a, a second, if you speed it up, uh, it will become a, a frequency. If you get up to you know fifty beats per second, then you have a frequency,
0: mm-hmm.
1: a continuous frequency. So, so it it exists on both levels, both as a rhythm and as a pitch. So you can't you really almost can't separate the elements of music because they're all tied together they they all live within each other's eggs,
0: mhm, kind of like mind body, yes, right. so are you philosophical about time in that you're working with it all the time?
1: for instance, if you're sitting down to play music during the day uh, night, whatever uh you're dipping into a sound current and at the beginning maybe you don't uh you don't know where it's where it is or or how to find it uh so you're you have to you have to be listening at the same time you're trying to find something and then once you've connected to it it's like this telephone conversation uh you're locked into it and uh things start coming through you from it, it to me sound never never originates with the with me, myself, my body, my person, it's, it's coming from somewhere else, but kind of tuning into it.
0: You're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and today we're hearing from East-West musical genius Terry Riley. Mm-hmm. I think all kinds of artists have expressed the same experience, whether they're writers or choreographers or visual artists or composers in a way all art is composition
1: right and we don't we kind of live in, in terror that we won't be able to connect to this you know this wonderful force yeah. that makes us whole yes and
0: making time to just sort of be there for it and bringing about the conditions through which you can just relax enough to to let it come through is really part of the artist's work big part of it Now, my experience of your music is that you really are an enchanter. You are able to cast a spell, you and the other musicians working with you. My experience last year, for instance, in Carnegie Hall uh, with the 45th anniversary concert of N.C. was that the audience was brought into a kind of altered state of consciousness that I experienced once before in a ritual called the Shivaratri, which is an all-night uh, concert with chanting and music and ritual. And it really creates a change in perception, a change in the nervous system. I would think that this type of music would come from somebody who has experienced altered states of consciousness through the music and through other means. Would you be willing to talk with me and our audience about your experiences with altered states and what they have meant to you um, as a person and as an artist?
1: It's difficult to talk about in a sense because we, uh, you know, Sri Ramakrishna, the great Indian saint said you know it's like when the salt doll goes down to the ocean to measure the ocean he walks into the ocean and then he dissolves in the ocean so he can't come back and talk about it Uh, essentially that's what happens uh, when we are in a special state and we're receptive and we we feel locked in and tuned into some universal sound current it's one part of us that's there but when we When we try to talk to other people about what that is, it's difficult to say in words. We just know that we were there. We visited that place. And part of it is, it comes through just the practice, uh, preparing yourself. As an artist, you have to do a lot of, there's a lot of discipline involved to get there. Uh, but sometimes, you know, in spite of all that, we just fall into that state. It's like, or or like meditation. It's, could be sitting down every day, but, One day you might just be walking down the street and you get the deepest meditation that you've had.
0: Yes. What about this discipline part, which is probably easier to talk about than to talk about the altered states, which as you were speaking, I must say it reminded me of what it's like when you come back from a very intense dream and you you really can't go into the details of the dream. You may not even be able to access that yourself, but you know you have had this powerful experience. But in terms of the discipline that you mentioned, what's entailed there?
1: Well, uh, I, I think of music as a daily practice and, I, and I'm pretty disciplined about doing it. For instance, I get up every morning and do raga practice. That's the first activity of my day. and Some of the practices involve just singing long tones with the tambura. And, and and by doing that, you you tune into a very fundamental sound frequency spectrum. And it's also a spiritual feeling. It's it's like there's something otherworldly about it. Uh, by, by practicing this every day, you kind of fine-tune your whole nervous system, I think, to this sound. It's a daily practice. I got into this more when I met Pandit Pranath back in 1970, and uh, would sit with him every morning uh, with the tambura practicing, and we'd get up early in the morning, way before the sun was up, and uh, start sitting and singing long tones with the tambura. And uh, this this is a very addicting (laughs) kind of experience. I mean, you, you want to start your day this way every every day.
0: How beautiful.
1: Of course, the ragas cycle through the through the day. The, the, they're related to nature. And that was, I think, a very important uh, revelation for me is how closely the music is tied to nature and the, the different shades of light during the day and night.
0: So there are ragas for how many parts of the day?
1: Well, it's all, all parts of the day. Uh, they go all through the night as well. So uh, they're, you know, this, it's an old science, and a lot of the origins of the ragas are lost. I mean, nobody knows who created them. Uh, but they, you know, they're, they come from a very deep spiritual tradition. So we know that that the people that did create these ragas were very in tune with nature and uh, had a very deep understanding of the relationship to sound and nature.
0: What a different value system from the dominant culture we're in now, and yet people respond to your concerts so strongly when they're able to be immersed in this, it's its a beautiful thing. You're pretty vocal and your visuals on your website have sort of a psychedelic look to them sometimes. Did you start out as someone who experienced LSD trips and things like that, and if you did. What would you say to people about the difference between the experience of getting to these places through ingesting drugs and these practices, these daily spiritual practices like meditation and doing the long tone chanting with the tambura and working with a spiritual master?
1: Well, it'd be kind of like you know taking the elevator up to the top of the Empire State Building or walking up the Entheogens definitely can take you very quickly to another realm and uh something a state a very special state so they can uh open up i think what happens with our normal life is we filter out uh many realities just so we can function in the world but uh people who for instance are schizophrenic or people who take l s d uh suddenly can have many pathways opened up to them simultaneously it, and uh you know that it just makes you aware that that the reality we live in in our everyday lives is a little bit uh, limited in scope in terms of what, what we're focusing on i think that uh for me the best thing about uh my experience on psychedelic drugs was that i was able to go very deep into the sound and actually live in the sound and the inside of it in a way that I had never experienced before, just totally totally overwhelmed with with how powerful the sound was
0: for myself, having experienced both entheogens and being now a long term meditator, I would say that you know it's just a whole lot healthier way to go about it, and that the entheogens don't do anything to mitigate against an underlying fear or insecurity in one's system, and one's experience, whereas these long-term practices, using your metaphor of the elevator or taking the stairs, because I think that would maybe attract people to doing it through the drug method and not doing it through... the more arduous uh, practice method but you don't build the, your muscle strength you don't build your cardio <laughs> by just taking the elevator in a sense it just gets you there and you're, there's no preparation for continuing to get there on your own you know what i mean
1: yeah i think that's that's true it's you know there's a fine line there that if you're there you're there you know mm-hmm. and the thing is that there might be a place bigger than you're able to handle uh, without some discipline.
0: Yes, I think that's an important point, too. I mean, we don't want to end up with mental illness or, you know, some sort of break in the psyche. And so I think it is important to encourage people to, yes, uh, cultivate the ability to be living in those states quite a lot of the time. But To use drugs to get there is not really very supportive of one's health, mental or physical health. You know, the Indian spiritual practices and other Eastern practices have really set us up to be able to, to reach these states and live in them and dwell in them quite a bit of the time. I want to get back to the experience of the Carnegie Hall concert last year and also the other concert I attended at Le Poisson Rouge with your son, Guillaume. There's such a community feeling that you create with the people you play with, and especially at Carnegie Hall. It was such a huge uh, group of musicians on stage. I think our culture, uh, people suffer quite a lot from a feeling of lack of sense of family, lack of sense of real community, and you model that through uh, what happens on stage, and you share that with the audience. I mean, I think people left that concert feeling a renewed sense of trust in that common humanity. So the question is, with the possibilities for this so close at hand, what do you think about... Um, our culture in the United States and the state of the world from where you sit as a visionary person who is able to create these marvelous healing dynamics and scenarios for your audiences. How does it look to you and what do you think we can do to bring about a more healing mode of living in, in the
1: world at large? Well, I hesitate to tell people what to do, but what I've done is try to get myself more connected with nature and that's always been my refuge you know throughout my life is learning from our natural world or i say the natural world, and that's getting away from so much dense man made uh sound and and visual stimulus that you can actually uh expand your ideas a little bit just. Through relating to uh, more open spaces, uh, I think people don't get much chance to do this. And today, the media that is out there, uh, if people are connected to it continuously, they're kind of being told to fill up their lives every second with some kind of entertainment. And to me, it isn't about entertainment; it's about about realization.
0: You're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, your host, and we're talking today with the extraordinary composer and musician, Terry Riley.
1: So, as people have that inclination, they should try to separate themselves a little bit from all the stuff that's going on that I think is probably intended a lot to manipulate them. Mm
0: Mm-hmm and it's quite overstimulating i i think that there is an addictive quality there because to just be for instance in a field by a pond and the cattails are waving and you're just sort of connecting with nature and being quiet i mean i think it's a process for urban people who are used to a lot of electronic stimulation music you know headphones in their ears and everything to allow themselves to make that connection and to reduce that that need to constantly be getting something um highly stimulating from the outside but nature is highly stimulating it's just um there's a subtlety there and i think that people need to understand that to just go across that bridge and meet nature um there's going to be a whole other level of stimulation
1: yeah, I mean, what we're getting, you know, for instance, you, ne- you never get away from sound in an urban environment or uh, man-made sound. And they put uh, music in all of the environments we walk through mm-hmm. in the city. And I think what it does is just tend to numb us so we don't really listen, we don't really see.
0: And on a so, physical level, I think that it compromises our hearing mechanism, actually, because there's a lot of loud noise in the subway and on the streets, and jackhammers and everything. And I think that on a physical level, it, it can really um, diminish the sensitivity of the hearing mechanism.
1: Yeah, and probably more dangerous. It, it desensitizes.
0: I also wanted to mention that I was really touched to witness um, your relationship with your son and to talk with him a little bit after the concert, you two seem to have a really beautiful, relaxed relationship. And I think that a lot of pain and destructive behavior in the world, and certainly what I witness here in New York City, stems from people having kids and not doing a great job of parenting, not knowing how to do that, and doing a poor job of it. So can you talk a little bit about your own approach to parenting and what you think are the essential ingredients to creating wholesome family relationships?
1: Well, I think kids are really aware and sensitive to the way their parents live and what their parents do, almost more than what their parents say. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, I didn't. I wasn't probably the uh, ideal dad that takes his kid to Disneyland. And, and
0: what's so ideal about that?
1: Well, that's what the American ideal, you know, is the, the, of the family. I'm, I'm saying, you know, the kind of family we didn't, we really didn't have that when my kids were growing up. So my life as a professional musician often took me away from home, and uh, and even when I was home, I was often working. I was composing or practicing. But I always invited my kids to be a part of that. Uh, you know, they could be around when I when I was doing it, and were although they often when they were young they didn't necessarily show a big interest in in that.
0: Uh, How many kids do you have? I have three. Uh-huh.
1: Uh huh. And there was a big space between. My daughter uh, was born in 1958, and the next son, uh, next next one was born in 73. So there was a big space in our family. hmm. Uh, The kids were growing up. We almost had two different families. Kind of unusual. And uh, I know a lot of artists that have kids, and it seems like it's different for every one of them. Uh, But uh, essentially, I think what the kids got out of our life together was the dedication that I had to music. Uh, Actually, they they liked that, and they all turned out to be dedicated to what they're doing. So in a way, you can kind of pass that on if you invite them into your life.
0: Guillaume is a musician and composer. What are your other kids doing?
1: My daughter is a doctor, an M.D.,
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: uh, John's older brother uh, teaches high school Spanish.
0: When you look at the span of your career as a composer, do you have favorite pieces, outstanding pieces, that are very close to your heart?
1: It's a funny question because uh, a lot of the times I, uh, I almost forget about them, you know. And then every once in a while I hear a recording of something I did, you know, and at that moment it seems totally new to me. And mm-hmm. I'm like hearing it almost for the first time. I don't know if other musicians have this experience or not, but it's true with me that I ac- actually often forget my own work after it's done. Not in the broader context, I mean, I remember how it happened, and you know, but but in details, and and in details sometimes are so amazing that uh, sometimes we'll put on, um, my wife often will put on a recording in the house here, because I don't play my own music normally, but I'll sit down when she'll have something on and really listen to it, and usually at that time, it's like the other night, we were listening to the Harp of New Albion, which is this big, long piano piece in Just Intonation that I did back in 1985. And I felt like I was almost hearing it for the first time, and I would say that when I was listening to it, I would have great admiration for the person that did it, but it didn't seem like it was me.
0: Mm. Well, the way you work in this bringing something through, making yourself open and available to let something happen, I suppose sometimes you're surprised in the moment, and then when you're on to the next thing, you could go back to something and say, who did that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or how, how did that happen? Very interesting. So I get, I'm gathering that your answer is is no that there aren't sort of outstanding favorites. Well, there are. You know, there are.
1: There are. But I mean, it almost doesn't matter to me which one I said because uh, it, mm-hmm. at some point they all have a deep significance to mm-hmm. my. You know, I have a deep love. For what they are, mm-hmm. each one. Or I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have put them out in the world. Yeah. I would have kept them in the closet. But the ones that I myself have been deeply moved by, I want to share with the world. So, they all have some aspect of them, and that I that I'm in love with.
0: How about the works of other artists? in music but also in the other arts have you sort of fallen in love with treasured works that have meant a lot to you consoled you inspired you been important to you
1: during different parts of my life different things have been very inspiring and uh you know when i was young I, of course it was the western classical music giants uh, beethoven and brahms and bach and WC Ravel, Stravinsky, Bartok—these were all you know big loves I had. Uh, and then I got into you know Eastern music and started discovering the rest of the world and the great the great traditions there. So I yeah, I have uh, over the time been greatly moved by other artists and other traditions.
0: Do you have any sense of aspects of a work of art that really get to you? whether there's any way to sort of analyze what a work of art or a piece of music what what about a work of imagination really gets into you
1: I don't know what it is but it's the effect you know the effect of really emotionally and spiritually and physically moving you yeah that works have and uh, it's uh, my teacher, Bonaphanath, used to say music should have the effect like if you dipped your hand into warm water, you'd feel the warmth. There should be something there that changes <laughs> us, that moves us.
0: You're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm your host, Jari Chevalier, and today we're talking with originator of minimalist music, Terry Riley.
1: So There's so many things about a work for it that, that can stimulate us. I mean, it can, the... the the perspective of certain artists will inform us about ideas that we hadn't thought about before. Mhm. So that, you know, it's, there's many things that that a work of art can do.
0: I've been thinking lately about the capacity to be imaginative and extend yourself imaginatively and the capacity for empathy and how empathy works in a way to be able to imagine what it's like to be someone else or to be another creature is similar to the imaginative capacity to really enter a work of art and be moved by it or to create something. Would you agree with that?
1: I do. I think imagination is an aspect of intelligence that's endlessly fascinating. Uh, It works along. It's part of intelligence and yet it seems to have its own separate way of working. Mm -hmm. Uh, For instance, if you're composing a piece of music, maybe the imaginative aspect minds the core ideas of that music, lets you see them. But then when you see them, you don't quite know why you're attracted to them. They're they're little sound objects that... uh, have some effect on you but you don't know what they are and then the imagination takes hold and it starts to manipulate them and juxtapose them in unusual formations and to me that's a really interesting part of the whole process and in improvisation this all happens spontaneously it happens right in the moment and that of course means that imagination probably works at you know highest speeds imaginable.
0: Mm -hmm. it's so mysterious really when you think about it in the same way that there's so much going on inside our bodies all the time by itself we don't know how these processes happen and similarly it's often when the imagination is engaged that it's doing things and we don't know how it's doing them but it's really quite mysterious and amazing, and um, yet effective.
1: I think it has a way of tuning into what I would call the universal mind, mm-hmm. and uh, that that's what that's what gives us a little extra boost, you know, as artists. That that, as I said before, nothing really uh, originates with us, or at least with our mind-body experience. That might be inside of us, you know, but it's part of the also the universal mind. Uh, the the supreme intelligence that's available to us if we can be quiet enough to to, uh, observe it.
0: Yes. Uh, I think Ezra Pound referred to artists as antenna.
1: Mm -hmm. That's what I often have thought. You know, it's also the microcosm and the microcosm, so we're part of that whole thing. The antenna is going both ways.
0: That's right. So back to the, the macro vision You are a gifted person and an imaginative person, and I wonder if you apply that imaginative mind to world problems, societal structures, just where we find ourselves. You talked about your love of nature and your deep connection to nature, and nature is quite in peril right now. Do you ever put your mind in an inventive way, in a creative way, to the world at large, and do you come up with anything, any vision
1: that you could share? I think it only happens through music for me. It's the only practical way I could see uh, of, of my life meaning would have, you know, is to manifest through music the kind of world I'd like to live in. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a philosophical message coming through music too, so uh without saying yes, we should all do this, we should all throw our televisions away or giving some kind of formula i I think we create little models of what we consider to be harmony
0: mhm
1: and uh a world you know a harmonious world would be a peaceful world, and if we can express that through music. Uh doesn't mean that peace has to be some kind of unexciting island of inactivity. It can be a very engaging and creative place, too. I just don't think as a society we, we ever explore those aspects. Many of us do, and, and but I mean that the, the way the world's going, we don't see it as, as evident. And art often gets caught up in the violence, too.
0: Do you mean competitiveness? And market-driven
1: art—is that what you're that thinking? That can be it. Also, the content can be very aggressive.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, especially true in in drama and movies, and but also in music and uh, and visual arts. And uh, I mean, people maybe do this for a reason, but to me, when you deal with negative things like that, you're enforcing that energy.
0: Mm-hmm. I do appreciate your willingness to say a few things directly in words uh related to the messages that come through in your music because I just think that some people who might not be connecting with your music or know you could be attracted to listening and listening for what you've got going on in your music through something that you say. And I know it's difficult for artists, to put into words what they really want said through their art. But sometimes even just a a simple statement or a few words can draw more listeners into the experience and have them understand what you really are giving better.
1: Well, there's always a danger that you're going to say something that you don't agree with.
0: (laughs) That's true, but, you know, we give each other a break. We can always correct ourselves. That reminds me of a line that really stuck with me from one of your recent compositions. You said, "Death costs a fortune, but life is free."
1: <laughs> That's
0: great. I, I love that whole piece, but I didn't note down what the title of that piece
1: is. It's, it's Missy Gono. Missy Gono was a imaginary friend of my granddaughter's, and she used to talk about her, and uh, so I decided to uh, mine my granddaughter's imagination a bit and create this piece yeah it's really charming
0: and full of wisdom so terry what is up ahead for you um what are you working on now and how can people find out more about concerts coming up Uh, what's your website
1: right now i'm in a period where i'm doing a few concerts i've just been working on uh, a piece for Kronos and the Youth Chorus of New York uh, that you saw at Carnegie Hall. They were the, those kids down on the right side of the stage.
0: Oh, I was sitting in the front row, right in front of them, and the person conducting them really had them so engaged. It was a pleasure to be right there.
1: Yeah, Francesco, the, the, uh, he's it was wonderful. The, the conductor of that group. And uh, yeah. Anyways, I'm writing a piece that will be performed next March in New York uh, for the, that choir in Kronos. I'm going to be doing another solo organ concert at Disney Hall uh, in November, so I'm kind of getting my mind prepared to do that. Since I'm not a an organist and I don't have access to an organ, I have to kind of do it all in my mind while I'm preparing.
0: You're going to blow your own mind when you actually get on the organ. I, I will.
1: Think. Uh, I played the Disney Hall organ uh, about a year and a half ago, and uh, it was I did a solo concert on it and, uh, one of the experiences of my life, it was not only at the concert, but preparing for it, I had to uh, go down to L.A. several times, and uh, they gave me the slot from midnight to 6 a.m. to rehearse every day, so I got to be in uh great Disney hall all night.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's
1: a trip. And with this magnificent pipe organ with 6,500 pipes, that is one of the most cosmic instruments i've ever oh
0: created. definitely the vibrations that are created
1: so anyway that's that's coming up too and uh i don't look too far ahead because I, I don't seem to be able to deal with more than one project at a time since i do a lot of different things i try to focus on what's coming up immediately for mm-hmm. me and prepare for that
0: it's been an enormous pleasure having this hour with you
1: thank you jerry it's been nice talking to you too